Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at just one short verse as we continue this series that we are, um, have embarked upon, this topical series entitled, Still Running to Win. We are still running to win, and by God's grace, we will continue to run to win. And as we come to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, uh, Paul is writing to God's people in Ephesus. There is a church there. It is a, it is a thriving church, is it? And he is, in chapter 4, instructing these dear saints to walk, as we heard in our call to worship, in biblical unity, that they would grow up into spiritual maturity. This is his concern. This is sort of the thrust of this, this portion of his letter. For the previ- in the previous three chapters, he has been detailing how exactly God has poured out his immeasurable riches into, uh, if you think of, a, of an old-fashioned scale with a fulcrum in the middle, he is on one side of that scale, God has been weighing it down to overflowing with all of his salvation riches. And he's been explaining that and unpacking that in the previous three chapters. And, uh, and then as we come to chapter 4, then he turns a corner and begins to exhort those who are reading this letter, to balance out all of those riches that we've been entrusted and given in Christ, and then walk worthy of all of that he has been, uh, all that we have been given. In other words, as you get to chapter 4 and following, we are exhorted to become in practice what we are in position. Um, we have been blessed, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has already explained in chapter 1 verse 19 that God has poured out the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. That he has united us in chapter 1 to his spiritual body, which is the church, and that he is filling up that body to all the fullness of Christ. In chapter 2, he reminds us that we have been made alive together with Christ and that we are now, having been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places, we are in him and all those wonderful salvation blessings have been made uh, applied to our individual hearts by faith. And through the cross, we learn in chapter 2 that Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and formed one new humanity, uh, the church, establishing a beachhead through whom God's divine rescue mission to the nations will unfold. He has made us partakers of all the promises given to Israel, his chosen people through Christ, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 says. And he has granted to us power at the end of chapter 3 to be strengthened in our inner person that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith and that we might be able to grasp in an ever-increasing measure Christ's incalculable love for us. In other words, God has put all of these blessings on the scales on our behalf and for our benefit. And now as he gets to chapter 4, he's saying, you, believer, need to live up to that, those spiritual privileges, that's those spiritual riches. You need to walk worthy of that. And the opening verses of chapter 4, from 1 to 16, are Paul exhorting us as his church to walk together in unity and maturity. We see an exhortation to unity in verses 1 to 6, and in those, uh, we just heard that read to us in the call to worship. But then as you get to chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 to 16, there is, there is alongside that exhortation the description of the exertion of unity. What does that look like on the ground? And he says you need to walk in biblical unity, but in order to do that, in order for us to do that, we must grow up spiritually. We must grow up into maturity. Unfortunately, there's always a temptation to become complacent in our Christian lives. That's kind of what we've been talking about as we've gone through these, these uh, first couple messages. Uh, it is easy. I confess it's easy in my own spiritual walk to put things on cruise control and just press that button and just ride this thing on out into glory. That's the temptation that's always in front of us. 
But that mindset, that kind of cruise control mindset, is contrary to the picture that we see in the New Testament of what the believer's life is to be like. In Philippians 3 and verse 12 and following, Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7, Paul says to Timothy, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And of course, we looked at this two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. He says, run in such a way that you may win. None of those exhortations are about cruise control Christianity. That, that is just not the case at all. And sadly, too many of us are focused on velocity when we ought to be focused on acceleration, to use a physics analogy. Too many are just happy to be moving. Hey, we're on the road. Okay, great. Instead, we ought to be laboring. We ought to be striving not just to be moving, but to be moving faster, to press the accelerator of our Christian lives so that we may press on. It's not about sitting our Christian lives is not, are not about sitting, it is about striving. It's not about resting, in other words, kind of letting go and letting God, but it is about reaching, actively putting off and putting on. It is not about complacency, it is about striving for the crown. Each and every one of us must press on toward greater Christ-likeness. As we have said all along, every message, we are a church that exists to glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And just as our physical bodies, with all of its individual parts, grows and develops from infancy into adulthood, Christ's spiritual body, the church, composed of individual members, all working together, grows up from being milk-drinking infants in the faith into becoming meat-eating, disciple-making disciples in pursuit of, of course, the Great Commission. And that's what Paul is starting to unpack for us here in chapter 4 in verses 7 to 16. He says, uh, but to each one of us, verse 7 Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far, from, far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love." Paul's instruction here is challenging us to walk in unity and to grow up into spiritual maturity. That's the theme of the whole section. In verses 7 to 10, you and I are challenged to press on towards spiritual maturity by acknowledging that God is a sovereign gift giver. Each one of us, in verses 7, are, as he says in verse 7, are given a gift or giftedness. It's not really one gift. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a divinely enabled gift that takes both our natural abilities and supernatural empowerment to be able to do these things. He says each one of us have been given this, this, these gift, this giftedness for the building up of the body. 
And, uh, and how, how can we do that? Well, God can do that because, as you see in verse 8, he is, uh, he is the victor, and therefore to the victor go the spoils. <laughs> That's the point of verse 8 and 9. He says he, he, he won the victory, and so he is the one that distributes the gifts and the spoils of his, of his salvation victory. And, of course, our response to that, our response to that is that he might fill up He might use us to fill up all things. And then as you get to verses 11 to 13, each one of us are then instructed to press on towards spiritual maturity as we aspire to the work of ministry. This is the work that he describes these offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor and teachers. And they're given, these gifted persons are given to the church for the work, uh, to empower the church for the work of service. It's not that we are the only ones doing the work of service, but that we are to equip the saints for the work of service. And with the goal being, verse 13, that we would all attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul expands on that purpose by reminding us to anchor ourselves to the truth. In verse 14, we see the instability of immaturity. The instability of immaturity. You cannot be a mature Christian and stand firm. You cannot be an immature Christian and stand firm in the truth. You will be tossed around, he uses the analogy of a boat on the water, by every wave, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the craftiness and deceitfulness of scheming. This is the church's great weakness. There is a lack of knowledge, a lack of maturity. Because, and because of, there is a lack of knowledge, they do not know the truth, and therefore everything that comes around the corner is a distraction. Everything that comes around the corner leads them astray. Rather than charting a course or being anchored to the truth, we end up falling prey to the currents of whatever the prevailing winds are. But the contrast in verse 15 is that we are to speak the truth in love, and we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ. And that brings us to what we want to look at this morning, which is actually just verse 16. Just verse 16, because as, as we press on toward maturity, we then attach ourselves to the body of Christ, the local body. The church The church is the way in which God is accomplishing his plan of salvation in the world at this time, in this this era. The church, specifically the local church, is the exclusive entity through which Christ is working out his eternal plan of salvation now. Um, And we know this just by, you know, as you survey the New Testament, the church is the only entity that Christ has promised to build, right? If you look at... um, uh, Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, you know, uh, he says, the church is his body and he is the one that is building it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is the only entity that Christ has died for. Look over at chapter 5 for just a moment in verse 25. He speaks, uh, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. So Christ has died for his church. The church is the only entity that that Christ is sanctifying and setting apart from the world. Because if you keep reading in verse 5, he says, he did all this, he gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ is building his church. He died for his church. He's sanctifying his church. The church, in other words, is precious to Christ. The church was precious to Paul because it was precious to his Savior. And it needs to be precious to you and I this morning. When the New Testament talks about the church, it almost always speaks about the local assembly. (coughs) Excuse me. He's never speaking about a denomination. They didn't even exist at this time. He's not talking about a building. 
like a physical structure. He's not talking about a state church or a state institutional church. When the New Testament speaks about the church, it's almost always referring to the local assembly. It's the local assembly of those who profess faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what a church is. We believe, as you saw last Sunday, in regenerate church membership. You cannot be a member of our church unless you have a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, and you have given testimony to that faith publicly in the waters of baptism. You can be a part of this church, and you can come, and you can participate in the activities of the church, and you can have friendships in the church, but you're not connected to the church without a profession of faith and that profession being affirmed by the church and welcomed into the fellowship of the church. It's the local assembly of those, the churches, who have turned from their sin and trusted Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's their hope, and that's what they're trusting in. As far as we can see and as far as you can know your own heart, that's what a church is. It is those who profess faith in Christ. So all to say, the church is a people. It's not a, it's not a place. It's not a place. Wherever the church meets, that's the church in that place. Uh, New Testament speaks about the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi. Or later on in Philemon, I think Paul addresses, uh, speaks of the church in a particular individual member's house. So it's, it's a church in, in, a, in a, it's a people that meet at a particular place. Now, it's true that believers, you and I, are part of the universal church. In fact, we're going to probably take a message or two later on this year to look at what does it mean to be part of the church universal, or sometimes the church Catholic, lowercase c. That is important. The, 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 we're true, we are part of the, the universal church, but the universal church always manifests itself visibly in the local assembly. Um, the easiest way to explain the relationship to the universal church to the local church, I've said this many times, is this. If you want to find the universal church, go to your local church. That's where you're going to find it. Christ isn't building his universal church apart from the local church. He's building his church through the local church. And those assemblies where the truth is preached and proclaimed are all over this earth by God's grace and his his prevailing power. And so as Paul wraps up this section here in chapter 4 on spiritual growth, I thought this is fitting for us to consider again this morning as we think about what it means to run to win. And our, and our philosophy of ministry, the second leg of that, which is to build up the body in love. We need to understand what that means. And what we're going to see this morning is that your spiritual maturity and the church's vitality is absolutely dependent on a meaningful commitment to the local church. Your spiritual maturity and the church's vitality, liveliness, is absolutely dependent upon a meaningful commitment to the local church. As we press on to the maturity, we are to invest ourselves in the body of Christ, and there's no substitutes for that whatsoever. I want to break it down into kind of give you three, I guess, reasons why we must be invested in the local church, building up the body in love. Three reasons, and that's kind of where we're, where we're going this morning. The first is in the beginning part of verse 16. You must invest yourself in the local church because there are no spare saints. There are no spare saints. Paul, again, it's hard to preach um, these passages without getting all of the context. Paul is building arguments, right? One of the things that Paul does very um, powerfully is to marshal together logical facts and to, to make arguments. And there's a flow to an argument. So sometimes if we jump into just one verse or two verses, we can divorce them from the context and we misunderstand the flow of the argument. But the flow of the argument in verse 16 continues on from what he has said previously. 
And he, he says, we are to speak the truth in love and to grow up in every respect into him who is the head, even Christ. And then he says this, from whom the whole body is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Christ is the one from, from whom the whole body grows. He's the head. We understand that. In other words, Christ is the source of spiritual life and growth for his church. If Christ wasn't building his church, his church would not be growing. It wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't even exist. Chapter 1, verse 22, Christ is described as the head of the body. Right? The full, he's the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 5 and verse 23, Christ is the savior of his church. Back in chapter 2, in verses 19 and 20, Christ is the cornerstone. He's described using the analogy of a, of a cornerstone of a building. And he is the one through whom the whole temple of the Lord is being built. So, in other words, Christ is the source of spiritual life and growth for his church. Without him, we'd be dead in our transgressions and sins. We, would, we wouldn't exist as the church. But then he goes on to, to show us how Christ causes the growth of the church. And this is, a, this is what we need to understand as it relates to us. Christ grows the church as the church is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. All right, this, this first term being fitted that you see there in verse 16. It has the meaning to join or fit together, particularly in reference to constructing something out of stone, which is how things, pretty much everything was built back in Paul's day. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21 references how the church is like a building being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You know, today as we build things, anyone who's done any kind of construction, uh, if you're building something, you, you connect stones or bricks together or block with mortar. Mortar's used to secure those stones into place and to build walls and so forth. But back then there wasn't mortar, it didn't exist. Stones were cut, they were smoothed, and they were put together in this elaborate process so they fit together exactly into the space that was needed. And that's how we are to think of Christ building his church. The emphasis here, just like it is back in chapter 2 and verse 21, is on the skillful fitting together of each stone to the other stones. They're not just heaped together haphazardly or dumped in a big pile. That's not building. And so just as the ancient masons in Paul's day used this this, uh, this skillful process of fitting the stones together, he's saying God in his church has carefully fit together each and every member with one another in the local body. And he says they are being fitted and held together. That's another term. Literally means to knit together or to join together in a personal way. The term was used philosophically to describe this process of making analytical comparisons and to draw conclusions, bringing arguments together in a systematic way, a thoughtful way, like a lawyer would in court. A teacher, for example, if, they're, if a skillful teacher that you've had maybe in school growing up or something like that is someone who is going to help you see the connections and unfold a, a topic or a theme in a very systematic and orderly way so that it's clear and you understand, or if it's a science type thing, a process in which you go from things that are foundational to things that are more specific. That, that is what he is describing here when he says that the church is being fitted and held together. He says he does that by what every joint supplies. Could be translated through every supporting connection or something to that effect. What Paul's saying here then in these opening, uh, opening part of verse 16 is this. Christ causes the growth of the local church as he skillfully and intentionally brings each member together and thereby allowing each member to supply what the body needs. Every contact 
contributes to the growth of the whole. Every person is fitted together in a purposeful, thoughtful way to bring about the unity and the maturity of the local body, and every individual person in it is necessary. In other words, there are no spare saints. There are no spare saints in Christ's church. Years ago, we had this armoire when we were living over in Dominion Station. We were renting a townhome, and um, the bedrooms were on the second floor, and we had this giant armoire from Ikea, and you couldn't fit it up the stairs to go around the corner and get into the bedroom, so we, I had to disassemble it and then reassemble it up in the bedroom. When I got done reassembling it, I had extra parts. <laughs> It still worked, so we, we left it there. But the point is this. As Christ is building his church, there are no extra parts. There are no extra parts. I mean, that's what he's saying here in verse 16. In Christ's church, every part is essential to the unity and the growth of the local body. There are no spare saints. There are no spare Legos in the church. Look at what Paul says. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. Look at Colossians 2. For just flip over uh, one, one book into Colossians there. You'll get in, in verses 18 and 19. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen and basically being inflated without cause. He says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So he says the same thing almost in the exact same way. Christ is the head, Christ is the source, and the church grows as each individual believer is fitted together intimately in the local body. The church grows as an organic unity. What's the implication for us then? Well, the implication is this. Your spiritual maturity and my spiritual maturity and the church's vitality are absolutely dependent upon a meaningful commitment to the local church. Uh, People over the years have said to me, Jeff, I hope this church can really grow. I hope this church can grow. And I'm, I'm with you in that. I want this church to grow as well. Let me ask you this question. Are you individually meaningfully connected to the body? Because that's how the church is going to grow. It won't happen any other way. Are you consistently here to worship God with his people on the Lord's Day? And if you're here, are you sacrificially caring for the needs of the body through your prayers, through your services, through your giftedness? Are you extending yourself to build spiritual friendships for the purpose of ministering God's word effectively to one another? Because if you're not doing those things, then you're essentially functioning as a spare saint. And there are no spare saints in Christ's church. God has sovereignly, he has intentionally, purposely placed you in this body to build it up. It's not an accident that you're here. And as long as the Lord has put you here, we need to understand that the church needs you and you need the church. So we must invest ourselves in the local church because we understand that there are no spare saints. Secondly, you must invest yourself in the local church because there are no trivial talents. There are no trivial talents Notice what Paul goes on to say here in verse 16. We grow up in every respect into the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. He says, and that happens according to the proper working of each individual part. So in the first point, he tells us that there are no spare saints. Every part contributes to the growth of the whole. Here he's telling us something about the degree of, of each member's contribution. 
expressed in a literal sense, it has the idea, uh, he's saying, according to the working in measure of each individual part. That would be another way of kind of summarizing that statement. In measure has the idea of proportion. It's a, it's a proportion of your gift. Every part contributes to the whole according to the proportional activity of each individual part. And this word measure is used throughout this whole section in chapter uh, 4, verse 7. He is given a gift according to the measure of Christ's gift. He expects every believer to use that gift to the measure given. Verse 13, he says, we all attain, as that happens, we all attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, The point is this, you give proportionally as you are gifted because you're measured out a gift and you have been given that gift by his grace. Paul is emphasizing here that each one of us has a responsibility to do our part and not depend on others to do the work of ministry. On the flip side, It also reminds us that none of us should think so highly of ourselves that we can believe that we we can do all the work of ministry. So it keeps us humble. Those who might be tempted to think that they're indispensable to God's purposes, and it keeps us invigorated if we think that we have nothing to offer. And just as there are no spare saints, Paul's point is there are no trivial or inconsequential talents. Or gifts. Look over with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or 12, excuse me, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18. Because there we see this illustrated in a, in a different context. But he says here in verse 18, but now. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another." And here we see that interconnectedness. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Paul's saying every single person, every part of the body is necessary. Every gift is necessary. There there are no trivial gifts, verse 22. On the contrary, much truer that the members that seem, seem to be weaker are necessary. Those who are seen less honorable or the less they have more of a, of a background responsibility, that that is somehow, uh, he says, to be understood as, they need to be understood as more honorable. God has so ordered the body so that they would serve according to the measure of the gifts that God has given that person. There are no trivial talents. And this is, this is true physically. We understand the analogy. Every part is essential, except for our appendix, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we don't need an appendix. But apart from that, the analogy holds. Hippocrates, in the 5th century BC, was fascinated with the precise functioning of the human body. He observed that good health proceeds when the various parts of the body function proportionally to one another. Pain and illness occur when one of the parts is in defect or excess or when it's isolated from the body. Years ago, years ago, um, my grandmother's brother 
They were living in New England, and he had, uh, some of you maybe have had this condition, his thyroid was completely in overdrive. And, um, and when it got to its absolute worst, he didn't sleep for three consecutive days. He was so like overstimulated from this, or, this tiny little organ in his throat. Uh, and his resting pulse was like 140 beats a minute. I mean, he was ready to jump out of his skin. And, uh, and so he was one of the first people, because he lived in Massachusetts, Mass General Hospital, he was one of the first people to do an experimental treatment to kill his thyroid and give him a synthetic medication. Um, but just that little tiny organ being out of whack basically drove him to the brink of insanity because it was overstimulated. In, in other words, every part has to work exactly right for us to enjoy full health and strength. And the same is true for Christ's body in his church. Every person is necessary. Every soul is essential. There are no spare saints. And not only that, if you're tempted to think, well, I have nothing to offer the church, you need to understand that every gift is necessary. Every, every gift is necessary. There are no trivial talents. And so you must invest yourself in the local body and minister those gifts in proportion to the amount that Christ has given them to you. That's why when you're not here, it matters to the body. When you're not striving toward personal holiness, it matters to the body. When you're not serving the saints, it matters to the body. If you're not doing those things, or you're not doing those things consistently, it hinders your ability to exercise your gifts in proportion to the amount that Christ has given them to you. And the church suffers. The church suffers. It's not what it ought to be. It's, it's tempting. And I've, heard, I've actually heard people say this to me in, at different times. Well, if I'm not there, it doesn't really make a big difference because stuff gets done anyway. Yeah, that's true. Maybe. Stuff will get done. Someone may backfill what you're not doing. The slack will eventually be taken up, but the church won't be as strong as if you had served. And the church won't be, that person won't be as strong as if you hadn't reached out to encourage them and borne that burden. The need may not be met to the degree that it could have been if you had not given those resources to meet that individual need. In other words, in other words, we have to understand that that sometimes the church is weak because because the members are not contributing to the growth of the whole on across the board like they ought. Our Contemporary Christian culture has become hyper-individualistic. We don't have, even have a concept anymore of anything beyond consuming. Where the church is not a consumption, it's not a consumption model. The church is a sacrificial model. We give to build up the body. And as we give ourselves to one another, Others are giving themselves to us, and we are built up alongside them. But we need to recover a sacrificial mindset in the church and not a consumer mindset. I mean, even think about how people uh, choose a church. They come in, and they look around, and they say, what does this church have to offer me? Now, sometimes that's things that are important, things that matter, but a lot of times it's things that don't matter that much. And so they look at the church and say, well, what can this church do for me? What can this church do for my children? What can this church do for whatever? When they need to say, how can I be connected here? How can I serve? How can I build this body up in love? Is this a place where I can be fed and also serve and use my gifts to the building up of the body in love? We must come with a different mindset we must invest ourselves in the local church. 
So we invest ourselves in the church because there are no spare saints. We invest ourselves in the church because there are no trivial talents. Thirdly and finally, we invest ourselves in the church because there are no alternative aims. There are no alternative aims. Look at the end of um, verse 16. He says, we grow up as every joint is fitted and held together, supplying what's needed according to the proper working of each part. And, And then he ends with this. And that causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's a lot of reasons why people want to see churches grow, and not all of them are right and good. Some people want to see the church grow, excuse me, because their selfish ambition is taken over, and they just want to see something built up from nothing, kind of an entrepreneurial attitude. Uh, Some want to see the church grow because they want to make a name for themselves. Maybe they're in leadership, and they think, well, this is the more that's going on here, the more opportunities I have to make a name for myself. Some do it. Uh, Some are in ministry and leadership, and even, um, and some people even give to the church to, to exert influence over the church or to make, uh, to control things. Paul says here the aim or purpose of the church is none of that. The aim or purpose of the church is to cause the body to build itself up in love. He, he switches back and forth throughout this section, and we saw that even in Colossians, as he switches analogies between the body metaphor and the building metaphor as he speaks about the church. Back in chapter 2, he does the same thing. One minute he's talking about the church as a temple, and then it's a temple that's growing. So it's like a body. Christ is the source from whom the whole body is pieced together so that each member can contribute their gifts proportionally to what they've been given, and that causes the body to grow up into maturity so that it builds itself up in love. So he pictures the church like a building, but it's a living and growing building. Not a bunch of dead stones, but a living, growing building. One soul at a time. And the aim is that the church would build itself up. That it would, as verse 13 says, attain to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And the key ingredient, don't lose that little prepositional phrase at the end of verse 16. It is not just to build itself up, but it is to build itself up in love. Love toward God and love toward one another. You and I contribute to the growth of the body when we serve one another in an atmosphere of love. Thus, Christ-like love amongst the brethren is a prerequisite for church growth. And the absence of love is a recipe for church decline. Now, earlier in the verse, Paul spoke of the interconnectedness of all the members. And now he makes clear that, that love is an integral part of this dynamic in order for the church to grow. And we understand this just on a practical level. Just as a child grows up better in an atmosphere of familial love, so the church grows more efficiently and effectively in an atmosphere of love between the brethren. Which is why unity, back to chapter uh, verse 1 and 2 and 3, why that's so important. There, there There is no other aim the goal of our faith is faith working through love. That's Galatians 5. This is what we're striving toward. Whatever other aims or purposes or goals we have for Christ's church, they're inconsequential to these. This is what Christ wants for his church. He wants it to grow up. He wants it to build itself up. Why is he so concerned about building the church up? Because when the church grows and the church attains to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, what does it do? It glorifies him. It honors him. It makes him known in the world. So his aim or purpose is still his own glory and his own greatness, but it's also for our benefit. It's for our benefit. If the church, if this church or any church is going to grow, not just numerically, but I mean grow 
in love, in maturity, in discernment, things like that. You need, if this church is going to grow, you need the local church, and the local church needs you. I've said it many, many times, there are no lone wolf Christians. There are no lone wolf Christians. Yeah, there are people out there that profess faith in Christ, and they have no connection to a local church. And they just do church on their own terms, quote-unquote, do church on their own terms. But I've never met one of those people that was growing spiritually. I've never met one of those people who wasn't completely blind to certain areas of sin in their life. I've never met one of those people that was truly, truly concerned about the needs of the brethren. It's always about them and what they can get and how this can fill them up. But you and I must be meaningfully, Paul's saying, we must be meaningfully invested in the church in order for it to become a unified and mature body. This is, this is one essential aspect of our philosophy of ministry. The church would build itself up in love. So I want to end with a, a question and an exhortation. The first is a question. Are you a part of Christ's church? Are you individually a part? Are you in the highest and truest sense a churchman in the sight of God? I don't mean are you simply a regular attender at this church, but are you a member of Christ's church? Are you joined to the great foundation? Have you built your house on the rock? Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are one with Christ and Christ with you? You need to think seriously because if you haven't trusted Christ this morning, you are not a member of Christ's church no matter how many churches you attend or how consistently you attend them. If you cannot give a confident answer to that question this morning, you need to be very, very careful. Be careful that you do not go down to the pit of hell, as, as J.C. Ryle says, from the land of Bibles. Be careful that Satan doesn't claim you as his own in the full light of Christ's gospel. That would be an utter tragedy. Come and join yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and be saved. Come to Christ who died in our place. Come to Christ who rose from the grave on the third day and invites you to lay hold of him by faith and be rescued. You say, how do I come? It's simple. You come as a hungry sinner to be filled. You come as a poor sinner to be enriched. You come as an undeserving sinner to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But you have to come. It's not going to happen apart from your commitment to him. Come into Christ's church and by faith and faith alone and promises that your heart will become his and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will shall be saved. So first, the question is, are you a part of Christ's church? But to those who are in Christ's church, there's an exhortation here. And the exhortation is this, strive to live a sanctified life. Strive to live a sanctified life, to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. We have to acknowledge that he is the sovereign gift giver. We must aspire to the work of ministry. And it is work. It takes work to love. I downloaded a a book the other day, and the title of the book is Loving the Ones Who Drive You Crazy. And it's about loving difficult people in Christ's church. We have to aspire to the work of ministry. We not only need to aspire to the work, we need to anchor ourselves to the truth. Right, that's 14 and 15, to, to build up the body in love. And then, of course, we need to invest in the body itself. Because the way we grow is in fellowship with God's people in his church. J.C. Ryle says, Be epistles of Christ, known and read of all men, written in such clear letters, that none can say of you, I know not whether this man be a member of Christ or not. He then goes on to say, It is a maxim among among farmers that the more they do for the land, the more the land does for them. 
I am sure it should be a maxim among Christians that they more, the more they do for their religion, the more their religion will do for them. And I would amend that last part to say, I am sure it is a maximum among Christians that the more they do for the body of Christ, the more the body of Christ will do for them. If you're disillusioned by Christ and his church and you feel like, I don't think I, I really, it's worth it, I would encourage you to come at it from a different perspective and think, are, am I praying for those people? Am I serving those people? Am I loving them and meeting their needs? And if you're doing all of those things, I promise you, I promise you, you will not feel the same way toward Christ and his church. You will love them. You'll, you'll want to be a part of that body, and you will grow. And so the exhortation is that we are to run to win. And the way that we do that, the way that we do that, among not only do we hold God high through his word, but we build up the body in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, ana- these word pictures that so vividly describe the, the richness of the body of Christ. And um, you, you take things that we know and understand and you, you adapt them and use them through Paul and others to help us under things, to understand things that we normally wouldn't come to know or understand apart from divine revelation. But it's one thing to know them in our heads. It's another thing to know them in our hearts and to live them out. So I would pray that if there's any here who are not in Christ, that today would be the day that they would draw near to you. That you would draw their hearts out of darkness into the glorious light of your gospel. And if there are some who are in Christ this morning, but are, their faith is weak and their connection to the church is growing cold and distant, and they feel as if they're not even meaningfully invested in the body of Christ, or may today be the day that they jump in, understanding that there are no trivial talents, there are no spare saints, that every part is necessary for the contribution and building up of the whole. And there's no greater purpose that they could be a part of than to be invested in that which you are building for eternity. So, Lord, strengthen our body, make it one body, we pray. May you build us up in love, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.